0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. If you've ever watched a crime show, you know that there's three things required for someone to be a suspect, right? They have to have motive, means, and opportunity. At least that's what I've surmised as I've watched like CSI and all these other TV shows and stuff, right? Crime shows, they have this uh, uh, way of working through whether someone could have committed a crime, and they really work through those three categories. A motive means they have a desire to commit a crime. They have some kind of impetus or some type of emotional response that would uh, push them to do something drastic. They have means. They have the appropriate tools. They have a knife or a gun or arsenic or whatever else it might be. They have opportunity. That means that they've had proximity to the victim within the time of the, the, the crime that it occurred, right? And so last week what we saw was that Joseph's brothers had motive. They had motive to do something uh, decidedly drastic to Joseph. What we saw was this word hatred or hated uh, has popped up time and time again in chapter 37. But this week, what we see is that they now have means and opportunity. As we come into chapter 37, verses 12 through 36, we see that Joseph's brothers are given means and opportunity to do something drastic to Joseph. And so here's where we're going to head this morning. Jesus' rejection became the means of our acquittal. And what we'll see this morning is we'll see this kind of mirror image between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus so that Jesus's, or Joseph's rejection by his brothers leading to his death mirrors that of the life of Jesus Christ. I want to pray this morning that God would open our eyes and our ears one more time. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to hear from your words. Allow us to see afresh the story of of your word from Genesis 37, the story of Joseph, and allow us to worship at the foot of the cross together. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start in verses 12 through 17, where we're going to see this, that Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers. Look at Genesis chapter 37, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in his fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please, where are they pastur or tell me please where they are pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go up to Dathan, or Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. See Joseph. Uh, sends or Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem. It starts in verses 12 through 14. And we remember from uh, a few months back or a few weeks back, uh, Shechem is this city where, where something drastic happened. If we remember back to Genesis 34, uh, Simeon and Levi ruthlessly killed an entire city uh, because of, of how Shechem had violated their sister. And so uh, there was this huge kind of Uproar that happened as Simeon and Levi and the other sons of Jacob kind of struck down an entire city worth of people. But Shechem was also something that raised Jacob's anxieties. If you remember that, that Jacob was concerned that he had that Simeon and Levi had made them a stench in the nations that were surrounding them. So Jacob was concerned that they were outnumbered and that if they were attacked or if they were kind of. Um, hated in the eyes of those nations, sure enough, uh, they would be overwhelmed. And so he sends Joseph to see if they are well, if they have shalom, if they are at peace in verse 14. And what happens in verses 15 through 17 is we have this scene, two verses that are describing how Joseph is lost. He cannot find his brothers in Shechem. And sure enough, this stranger kind of comes and introduces him and says, hey, your brothers are at Dothan. Why did Moses choose to record this for us? It's telling us that Jacob has put Joseph at risk. Joseph is wandering the fields alone in an area with lots of enemies. Joseph is not safe. Remember, when Dinah was violated in in chapter 34, verse 1, it's because she went out from the camp of the Israelites and went to see the women of the area. She went out alone. And here Joseph is alone again. He's left Jacob's house, and he's wandering the desert 50 miles away from his own father. See, what this first section highlights for us is that Joseph is endangered for his brothers. Joseph is sent out. Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brother's safety, but in so doing, he leaves Joseph vulnerable from the valley of Hebron, where Jacob was, to Shechem. That's a 50-mile hike. So Joseph is 50 miles away from his home in a land full of potential enemies by himself. This reminds us, doesn't it? It reminds us of God who sent Jesus for us. Jesus reaffirms his purpose for his coming. In Luke 19, when he's interacting with Zacchaeus, he says, The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And there's a similarity then between Joseph who was sent out and Jesus who was sent out to the lost brothers. Both Jesus and Joseph were sent for brothers in danger. But Joseph's greatest threat isn't the people of Canaan, is it? We know from the rest of the story that we're all familiar with this story that Joseph's biggest threat isn't from uh, these people, these uh, nations that are gathered around the brothers. In fact, it's from the brothers themselves. And what we see in this next section is not just that Joseph, or Jacob sent Joseph for the brothers, it's that jo- Jacob is actually going to be rejected by the brothers. Look at verses 18 through 28, where we see Jacob's sons sell Joseph to Midianite traders. Look at verse 18 with me. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. See, the brothers develop a plan in verses 18 through 20, right? The plan has three parts. You imagine, as you listen to your own kids conspire together, how involved this plan was, right? First, they wanted to kill Joseph. A Second thing, they want to throw his body into an empty cistern. And third, they want to tell his father that a wild animal killed him. Now notice the mention of Joseph's dreams in verses 19 and 20. They call him a dreamer in verse 19. Here comes this dreamer. They're almost spit when they say it. They're so fed up and sick of their brother. And then in verse 20, uh, they mention that uh, with a sense of foreshadowing, we will see what becomes of his dreams. It's ironic that this actually leads to its fulfillment. This statement actually leads to these brothers eventually bowing down to Joseph later on in our book. But what happens in verses 21 through 24 is that Reuben intervenes, and they they throw him into a pit. Remember, Reuben's the eldest brother and would likely be held responsible for anything that happens, right? Uh, Reuben makes a good decision here in verse 21. We're going to call him Reuben from now on because it's going to save me time, right? But Reuben makes a good decision in verse 21, and he follows it with a host of bad decisions. In verse 21, he speaks up. He says, let us not take his life. That's a good decision, Right? But from that point forward, he makes a string of bad decisions. Reuben is seeking to take advantage of his brothers to regain his favor with Jacob. If you remember, uh, just a few chapters ago, in chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben actually slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. That's actually some of his brother's mother. That kind of leads to some family turbulence, and, and Reuben is kind of on the outs with Jacob. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to regain favor in verse 22, that he might rescue him. He, Reuben wants to rescue Joseph out of their hand to restore him to the father. He has this image of his head with his arm around Joseph coming back to Jacob, having rescued the favored son and coming back into Jacob's good graces. When verses 23 through 24, we get the upshot of this whole interaction. And what happens is Joseph is stripped of his robe, the sign of his father Jacob's favor. He's thrown into this empty cistern, and Joseph is left to die. Let's look at verses 25 through 28. See, what happens here is that the brothers develop a new plan. Look at verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. See, the brothers take a lunch break. It's been a hard day throwing their brother into a pit. And so they take a lunch break, and as they're eating their falafel and dates, they hear their brother screaming, crying out for mercy just highlights the callousness of what they face. And so they see this caravan of Ishmaelites and uh, it was likely this kind of trade route that existed between north of Israel and down to Egypt where there was these kind of uh, traveling traders that were there. They're bringing all these things listed here. And look at Judah's statement in verse 26. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? hey, wait a minute, what, is it, what do we stand to gain from this? Outside of just silencing this dreamer, what do we stand to profit? And he goes on in verse 27, he says, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. See, Derek Kidner highlights that when he uses the word profit, it's this crass term. It's like when we talk about loot, as if anybody ever talks about loot that they have anymore, or scratch, in case you were in 80s, 1980s pool hall, you would use those terms, right? Well, what he's talking about here is using these kind of loose terms because Judah sees an opportunity for profit. First, we recognize that Reuben's plan has no specific end, does it? Right now, Joseph's just in a pit, and there's no end for how this thing is going to end. But second, Judah sees an opportunity for them to actually gain profit. See, in the Old Testament later on, I think it's in the book book of Deuteronomy or, or Leviticus, they'll spell out the price of a slave: it's 20 pieces of silver. And so. These brothers are looking at Joseph and they're saying, why not make a little money for ourselves? uh, A commentator I was reading this week said the average yearly income of a shepherd like these brothers would have been would have been eight pieces of silver a year. And so they're increasing their profit probably by 20, 25% on the year. And so Judah is looking for opportunity here. And in verse 28, Joseph is lifted out of the pit but not for salvation. This mini reprieve is actually about his brother's benefit, and he's lifted out of the pit and sent to these strangers, to these traitors. See, when Joseph was endangered for his brothers in the former section, Joseph is endangered by his brothers here See, Jacob seems almost unaware of the animosity that exists between his other sons and Joseph. See, Joseph was far more at risk in the presence of his brothers than in the presence of these Canaanites. And it's really highlighted in verses 15 through 17 that as Joseph, Joseph kind of wanders around in this strange land and comes into, a, uh, into contact with a stranger, he's actually more safe with a stranger in the middle of nowhere than he is with his own brothers. See, the passage contrasts how Joseph was treated by this Canaanite alone and vulnerable in the wilderness versus how his own family treated him. See, again, we see likeness. Not only is Jesus the one who sent out like Joseph, he's the one rejected by his own brothers. See, when the Father sent Jesus to us, he knew full well what would happen we're also familiar with Isaiah 53, but one of the lesser known sections of Isaiah 53 says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That the Father himself initiated the crucifixion of his own son, Jesus Christ. See what Jacob did unwittingly, God the Father is going to do intentionally. When Jesus was murdered then it was murder one. It was premeditated death, planned from before the foundations of the earth by his own loving Father. See, But both Jesus and Joseph were crushed by their brothers, rejected because of righteousness. But we have a problem here now, don't we? There's one of 12 brothers who's missing. And it's not like you can just show up back at home and say, Oh, yeah, what happened to Joseph? We haven't seen him in a while. Hmm, funny thing. Now, Joseph's absence must be explained. And Jacob is about to experience yet another loss in his life. And so in verses 29 through 36, we see that Reuben and Jacob both react to the loss of Joseph. Look at verse 29 with me here this morning. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. See, what we see here is that Reuben and Jacob react to the loss of Joseph. And it's quite a different reaction if you actually stop and consider what's happening. First, we see that Reuben responds to Joseph's enslavement in verses 29 through 30. See, Reuben's plans to get back into Jacob's good graces have just disappeared before his eyes. Look at the statement in verse 30. The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? That phrase, where shall I go, uh, it could literally be translated, where shall I come in? where do I fit in with our family? Where do I now, uh, how do I approach Jacob now that Joseph is gone? It shows that Reuben feels he cannot return home in good graces with his father. It's actually added to his tension with his father as Reuben was responsible for all of his other brothers. What happens in verses 31 through 32 is the brothers just, uh, they connivingly kind of cover their tracks, right? They they gather one of uh, Joseph's Leftover pieces, the robe that's there, and they dip it in goat's blood, and voila, they have an account of what happened to Joseph. Just 10 chapters ago, if we remember, it was a a garment of, of Jacob's brother and a goat that deceived Isaac on Jacob's behalf. And now it's a goat and a garment that now deceived Jacob himself. And it reminds us that what goes around comes around. Jacob, the deceiver, is now being deceived. Notice the callousness of, of these sons as they come to Jacob in verse 32. Notice the harshness of this statement. We have found this. Please identify whether it's your son's robes or not. There's no mention of whether they're his brother. There's no mention of anything happening there. Jacob's response is, is heartbreaking. Verse 33-35. through 35, He responds to Joseph's death. Look at how Jacob just fills in all of the details himself. He's shown this robe. The sons make no mention of anything that's happened, but they say, is this your son's robe? And, and Jacob fills in all of the details. Joseph was mauled by an animal. Joseph is torn to pieces. I will only see Joseph when I die and go down into the grave. See, Jacob rightfully mourns something that's tragic but the problem is, is that Jacob doesn't stop mourning. If we go back just a few chapters, remember when, when Jacob lined up all the sons as favorites? Well, Joseph was the one at the back. Joseph was the, the creme de la creme. He was the favorite son, wasn't he? And now he's lost his favorite son, and he doesn't know how to get beyond it. He cannot stop mourning. Jacob tears his garment He puts on sackcloth and he mourns, but when his family comes to comfort him, he cannot be comforted. First of all, just consider how awkward it is if you were the ones who sold the son into slavery, rising up and coming and trying to comfort your father about the thing that you caused. Verse 35 highlights this. He says, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Not a really hopeful statement here from Jacob, is it? You might be wondering, okay, what is this Sheol thing? What, is, what are we talking about with this? So Jacob mentions this. Well, Sheol is kind of a, subject, or a shady subject in the Old Testament. Some people think that it's, it's kind of like the Old Testament version of hell. Others say that it's kind of like a holding tank for the dead, and there's two compartments. There's the good side and the bad side, like you're on the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. But what really is is getting us is when Jacob is only envisioning that he's going to be united with his son after his death, just like David envisioned a reunion with his son through Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. See, we read this passage, and it's heartbreaking. It's another thing in Jacob's life that just kind of culminates to this sorrow, to this uh, pain. Later on, at the end of Jacob's life, he's going to respond, and he said, I have so much Hurt, so much hardship in my life. And these kind of events kind of add to that. But as we pull away from this, what really uh, is the center of this passage? How do we understand what exactly Moses is recording for us? And I want to highlight something just in the text that stands out to us as we interpret it that there's a word that's used some eight times in the chapter uh, 37 here this morning. That word is the word robe. See, this passage really swirls around Joseph's robe. If we go back to chapter, or, uh, verses 3 and 4, we find that Joseph is given this robe, this, uh, you know, multicolored robe of whatever it is, as a sign of, of Jacob's overwhelming love for Joseph. The robe given to Joseph is the cause of his brother's hatred, And so Jacob's this Joseph is this son who has received so much love and so much care from his father that it's kind of signified in this this robe. Well, that's the very first thing that they strip off of Joseph in verse twenty-three. When the brothers meet him, they strip off the robe off of Joseph, and that's when they start to uh, violate him. And again, by the end of the chapter, it's this robe brought to Jacob, dipped in the blood of a goat, which provides the escape. From punishment. See, this robe is both the cause of Joseph's supposed guilt and also the cause of his brother's exoneration. When, Joseph, uh, when Joseph's absence should have told Jacob of the sins of Reuben and his brothers, the robe provided an acquittal. See, Joseph's robe, in some sense, becomes a substitute, an alternate theory for the fate of Joseph. It's this substitute that is brought to Jacob to ransom the brothers from their guilt. The dipping of this robe into blood, if you were an Israelite at this time in, in Moses' era, you would have immediately thought of sacrifices, wouldn't you? Dipping this garment into the blood of an animal that has been killed to kind of uh, take away guilt, it would have immediately kind of tuned in their minds and hearts to, to covering over sinfulness. But we have to admit that this substitute that these brothers have come up with, it's janky. That's a technical term from the Hebrew, I think, right? It's Broken. That is, this alibi provided by these brothers will surely fail. After all, there are 11 brothers remaining, all with varying levels of complicity. And surely this truth will come out. Surely Joseph's true fate will be revealed at some point. There's no way that this secret will keep itself amongst these 11 brothers. Right? I remember when I was in college, I had no money. But I, I, was made, I always made sure to have a great car stereo, right? That was a priority in my life. And so I had gone out and bought a stereo for my car, and it wasn't working correctly. Specifically, it wasn't getting power. And so I went to my roommate in college because I had no money, and I said, hey, do you know how to fix this? I don't know what's going on with this. This is a problem. And I loved my roommate Dave. He was great. But he had a history of fixing things in the most ghetto way, right? Right? And so here he is, he's like, oh yeah, I can totally fix it. And what he chose to do is run a power cable directly to my battery. And that meant that if I didn't turn off the stereo when I got out of the car, it would run the battery down and I would be stuck wherever I was. See, Dave had this reputation of repairing things that that really wasn't a repair. It was kind of like a halfway attempt, right? You ever meet somebody that their car is held together with wood and duct tape and other things? Well, this is what these brothers are doing. This covering for the sins of Jacob will not last, Over the sins of the sons of Jacob will not last. It's eventually going to be revealed, and it will be revealed in the most shocking way with a true smoking gun as Joseph, a living, breathing Joseph, appears on the scenes. In that moment, their lies and their false substitute is going to fail them. See, the truth is this morning, as we gather together to worship, as we gather together to hear from the Lord, we recognize that God provides a true substitute for sin, doesn't He? God provides one who will speak a better word than our sinfulness will. The substitute that God provides for sin is not temporary. It doesn't lose effectiveness with time. It isn't strung together with lies and deception, the true substitute that has come into the world, the true ransom for sin, has gone to Calvary, has been laid down on a cross, was, was beaten and mocked by men, was uh, put into a grave after his death, was raised out of the grave three days later, and now stands before God himself pleading the bitterness of his own blood. See, this morning I want to draw our attention to the New Testament's teaching. And I, I found this verse as, as I've been reading through the book of First Peter, and I just wanted us to just pause and consider what this verse says. You've heard it before. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Maybe we are over-familiar with this verse. I not want to take time just to unpack its meaning and its depth and its beauty and its clarity so that we can find the true substitute and not be settling for false substitutes this morning. See, what he says is that Christ also suffered for sins. Christ is one who's suffering for sins. Jesus' suffering was not self-wrought. Have you ever thought about that? How much of our suffering is something that we ourselves have created in our life? We've done something wrong in our past, and we have created our hardships. This week, earlier this week, I did not shovel my driveway, and now I have an ice rink for a driveway. I'm paying the cost. I'm reaping the benefits of my own laziness throughout this coming week. See, Jesus' suffering was not self-wrought. Instead, He willingly took on our suffering. Jesus suffered the wrath of God that we might not suffer the wrath of God. If we were to go back into First Peter chapter two, uh, Peter says this. He says, "He himself bore our sins in His body on the tree." That Jesus on the cross was actually dying, not because He had done something wrong, but because we had done something wrong. The punishment that our sin deserved was displayed at the cross. But it's not just that Christ died for sin, it's that Christ died for sinners. Isn't that what Peter says here? He says, the righteous for the unrighteous. The word for is of the utmost importance in this phrase, isn't it? It's the Greek word, huper. It's a preposition, it typically means over. It's used in places like Hebrews 2, where uh, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, or Titus chapter 2, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. See, the word for is, is this idea that Jesus has laid his life over top of our sinfulness. He has taken that punishment and he has covered over our wrongdoing. In the absence of righteousness, the sons of Jacob could only produce a bloody robe over their sinfulness. But our provision in Christ speaks before the throne of God and unto the ends of the universe. It's the insertion of Jesus' spotless life over our sinful humanity that grants us access before His throne. We ourselves are the substitute. We have been substituted for by Jesus Christ Himself so Christ suffered for sin Christ suffered for sinners and Christ suffered to bring us to God is that what Peter says here that he might bring us to God Jesus suffering had purpose namely to bring you and I as sinners into the presence of a holy God we were alienated from God because of our sin Remember when Adam and Eve sin? They they violate God's righteous standard. They are told that they should not eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And what do they do? They eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And, And subsequently, what God tells them is that they will surely die. He's told them beforehand that they would surely die. But what that means is that God has to remove them from the Garden of Eden. But when Jesus took the suffering we deserved, He gave us His righteousness, so that now we can be brought back into the presence of God, we have confident access before God's throne. I love where Galatians 4 uh, speaks, and, and Paul is talking about our adoption in Christ, and he talks about Christ, and he says he was born under law, born under a woman, or born unto a woman, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See Jesus came, and he took those things that were far off, and He brought them near. Jesus came into our humanity so that we might be reintroduced to divinity. I here we just have to stop. So many of us are familiar with what we've just covered. We've, we're familiar with God's substitutionary work in Christ. We're familiar that, that God gave Christ us righteousness for our unrighteousness, that He died for sins, that He brought us back to God. But we have to rest and we have to stop and just think about this. Do we really believe this? Do you bank your life on this? Is this your only hope in life and in death? Is this the reason you wake up in the morning? Is it the thing that helps you sleep at night? Is this substitution by God Himself, is it the the axis on which everything turns for you? The fact is, I'm becoming more aware in my own life is we often try to insert our own substitutes, don't we? We come like the, the sons of Jacob, into Jacob's presence, holding a bloody garment, thinking that it will cover over all of our wrongs, but it won't. Let me just give an illustration of this. You mess up. In a fit of blind rage, you stand up at your meeting at work, and you point your finger at your coworker and you call him a cotton-headed ninny-muggins. I don't like to throw that term around, but I'm kind of a rebel as a pastor. You storm out of the office. You drive around town. And in your head, what you're doing is you're doing the the judge, jury, and executioner, aren't you? You are actually playing through the intricacies of the argument in your own head. And you're telling yourself all of the reasons why you were right to act this way. And what happens that night you come and you sit down with your wife and your kids, and you eat dinner, and you, you are just frustrated. You're angry. And what you say is you say, well, if he would have just done this, or how could I responsible be responsible to do this thing? And in your head, you're just going through the argument time and time and time again, just turning it over in your mind. And so what you do that evening is you say, you know what, I'm going to mow the lawn tonight. Or I'm going to watch this TV program tonight. And, and what you're doing is you're doing strategy number one. You're, you're kind of uh, self-distracting, aren't you? You're trying to insert something else into your life to distract yourself from the thing that you know you need to deal with. So you wake up the next morning and you're in the shower and again, the conversation is happening in your head and you're being judge and jury and you're doing everything in your mind and you're thinking to yourself, if they would have only or if they could have done this or if I would have not done this, they surely would have been, right? And you're thinking through all of this and you're blame shifting. That's strategy number two, right? You're blame shifting. You're saying, I'm not the problem, they are. What happens is that day you... Um, You're at work, but it's kind of a mindless day, and you can throw yourself into a theology podcast. And so somehow you manage to download 21 one-hour episodes in a 24-hour period, and you ingest all the depth and meaning of whether Adam had a belly button. And you just throw yourself into this deep controversy, and you're saying to yourself, see, I'm all right. Who else wants to learn about these needless God things that I do? Certainly uh, not my godless coworker, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially Carl, the cotton-headed ninny-muggins in accounting. I fast twice a week and listen to really boring podcasts about nothing. And so you've accomplished strategy number three. You've emphasized your strong suit. What we do is we we just traffic in these other systems of self-justification, other substitutes that we bring to the presence of God and say, God, I'm a theology head, so you should accept me. God, I'm not as bad as Carl in accounting, so you should accept me. God, I I, I distract myself. I'm not a bad person. What we do is we do these things. We blame shift. This involves two things. We minimize our participation in sin, and we pin the problem on some other scapegoat that's around us. We self-distract. We ease our mind through other enjoyable things. We mow lawns and watch TV programs and do whatever else we need to forget about what's really bothering us. We, a strong suit. We try to escape our culpability and sin by pointing to other qualities that we have that are good. Uh, we try to muster up better theology and worship or whatever else it might be to kind of cover over our shame. Is that you? Cause, man, I feel like it's me. I feel like the last place I want to go is to the foot of the cross and say, Lord Jesus, you have covered over my sinfulness. You've done over with this wrong. You have covered this over with the blood of your own Son. And I have no claim to righteousness. I have no claim to goodness. All I have is Christ's sacrifice. I was reading, uh, John Stott said this in a book I was reading this week. He says, superficial remedies... Are always due to a faulty diagnosis. Superficial remedies are always due to a faulty diagnosis. And could it be that our attempts to substitute betray our misunderstanding of God's holiness? Are we either making our sin less so as to elevate ourselves, or are we making God's holiness less so that we bring God down to our level? See, whatever the case may be, the Scriptures hold out that there's one atonement for wrong. One mediator between God and men. Jesus Christ the righteous. There are no other substitutes but Jesus' sacrifice. The best hope hope we have for guilt-free living is ironically the place where we find the most guilt. We have to go back to the scene of the crime. It's at the cross that we find ourselves complicit in Jesus' death, but also vindicated from sin. See, like Reuben and Judah, we are both complicit and vindicated. Do you trust that this morning? I wonder sometimes if we just need a gospel primer We need a a chance to just unpack the beauties and the majesties of God's goodness to us in Christ. Not a new application to add to our repertoire of other good things we do to please God. What we need is a refresher. We need to be drawn back to the foot of the cross, shown grace and mercy, invited to do away with all of our self-appeasements all of our self-atoning that we try to do and instead find grace and mercy afresh. Maybe you're with me this morning. Maybe you're tired and weary. Can I just invite you to come to the cross? Can I invite you to come and renew yourself through the shed blood of Jesus that gives you confident access before his throne? I'll be honest, as a pastor, one of the things I'm most concerned about right now is I just sense a general weariness. It's not just from people here. It's, it's certainly true of some people here, but I just sense it as I'm out and talking with others that I just sense they're just tired. I'm tired to some degree. Maybe you're here and you're weary. It's here that we find hope in the cross. It's here that we go back to the basics where we are reminded of God's goodness and mercy in Christ. Amen. I want to pray for us in just a moment and pray that God would just give us a gospel renewal, a rejuvenation where we understand anew God's mercy and kindness in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that. We ask that very thing that you would bring renewal and strength from the true substitute that was given to us. Lord, help us to push away from the false substitutes that seem to want to creep up into our minds and our hearts, the places where we want to perform to make you pleased with us, the places where we want to project an image to others that make them think that we're more righteous than we are. Lord, instead, help us to cling the cross. Help us to be like Paul and say that we know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish this in us. Help us to learn what it means to walk with you in humility as we claim the righteousness of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.